Welcome to Minority Report. I'm your host, Salomon Flamenco. And joining me is special co-host, Stephanie Shea. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, everybody. Hi. I'm super excited to be here. I am Stephanie Shea. I am currently a graduate student in the Communication, Culture, and Technology program at Georgetown. And I am also co-host of the podcast, Media, Culture, and Why We Feel Like Crying So Much, where we draw on critical and social theory to discuss implications of the media in our daily life. And a lot of my general research focuses on the social implications of media and media practices in our daily life. So this per- this podcast is like the perfect thing for me. No, yeah, that's what initially I brought you on for. I remember when we first started talking, when I came into Georgetown, and we talked a lot about that, especially also talking about media depictions of Asian Americans and Latin American culture and how things get weirdly popular out of the blue. I know we just specifically talked about that. And I thought you'd be a great co-host for this episode, specifically where we talked to Professor Sylvia Chung, who works at the University of Virginia, um, founded the Asian American and Pacific Islander Studies Program, teaches in media studies, American studies, I believe English studies. I found out about her through a New York Times book review. And I read her book, The Oriental Obscene, which is a book about how Americans reacted to images of and from the Vietnam War and how those like reactions were influenced by racial stereotypes, but also the trauma of the war. And I, I think it's very interesting, right? Because Vietnam, I mean, people always call it like the first television war, right? Where it was the first one that people could sit down and see images from it and how it affected the American psyche and how it bled into a lot of these other facets of American life at the time, like the civil rights movement, second wave feminism, but the feminist movement, like a lot of different facets that were burgeoning in the 60s and 70s. But I also believe that Americans have this really weird tendency to take conflicts overseas and kind of make it about them, right? And you can still see this now with like the drug wars, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. By far, if you look at where the violence is, it is not on the home front with us. It is abroad and the violence that the empire kind of inflicts onto others. Yeah, I think this conversation really will encapsulate how media is so strong in shaping narrative and how kind of like diabolical it can be when it is coming from greater industry in sharing ideology, sharing thought patterns, stuff like that, and how that repetition will influence thinking, social behaviors, political behaviors, and stuff like that. Uh, I know that's even happening with, like, popular movies that feature American military. So, like, Top Gun, all the other movies, they don't really focus on the place that they're in. They don't focus on the fact that they might have started a war or the impact of the people overseas. Like, it's... Oh, American military. Yay. I'm so happy she came on. I hope you all enjoy the conversation. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for joining me. No problem. My pleasure. I'd be interested if you could tell the audience who are you and a little bit about your research and work. Yes. My name is Sylvia Chong, full name Sylvia Xinghui Chong. I say this because there are a couple other Sylvia Chongs running around academia. I am a media studies and Asian American studies scholar. And I am, right now I'm an associate professor at University of Virginia, sort of neighbors with you. 
And I teach in American studies and English, and I run the Asian Pacific American studies minor, which I helped co-found back in 2004. That's very impressive. Yeah. I found out about your work through, um, in a really roundabout way. I don't know. Mind, do you mind if I tell the story about how of I, of course, I, yeah, this is a couple of years ago and I was getting my, someone in my family a Christmas book. And then in the New York times article about the review, they brought up your work, the Oriental obscene. And was this Gina just, Diaz? Yes, I think it was. It might have been. <laughs> was... <laughs> He's like the only person, famous person who knows about my work. And that's a complicated <laughs> thing too. Yeah, no, of course. And then I, I think it was actually, yeah, because another professor of mine mentioned they went to uni together. But yeah, that's a whole other tangent. Years later, I'm here at Georgetown. I'm trying to find, you know, specific works about diaspora and media and ethnic studies. And then it came back to me. I was like, oh, the Oriental obscene. And yeah, I think it's a great book. I would like if you could tell the audience a little more about its conception, its inspirations and what it's about, obviously. Sure. And, and you know, so... I'll, I'll start with a little something personal, I guess, or intellectual as well. When I went to Berkeley and it was for my PhD in rhetoric, I had had very little encounter with ethnic studies, which is a field I belong to right now. But I went to school in the Northeast, a little school called Swarthmore. I don't know, we could count the number of Asians of any color, you know, in one hand. I thought it was amazing just to discover feminism, much less talking about women of color and issues of race. So when I began this project, I had, I was taking film classes, also something I had not done, and thinking about this uh, renaissance of violence in American cinema and where it was traced to. And as, as I was doing research, it was on American directors that consistently pointed to Asians and Asian cinema as inspiration and or I don't want to say inspiration. Some of it was inspiration, like people watching, let's say, the Japanese film, samurai films, kung fu, wuxia films. But some of it was, I wouldn't, I don't want to call it inspiration because it's really quite exploitative. It's sort of being influenced by watching dead Asian bodies during the Vietnam War. As many people have told me then and now, the Vietnam War is really poorly studied in, in American curricula. And I was no exception. But the war felt very personal to me because it, I, I'm a 1.5 generation immigrant. I immigrated as a child of my family and we immigrated in the wake of the Vietnam War. We are not Vietnamese American, but it meant that the events of the 70s were very crucial to shaping the experiences of my family, who I came to be, but I had no idea about that. I ended up zooming in on the Vietnam War era stuff was to understand this question that a lot of people confront. Who am I? Where do I come from? But I approached that question differently because it wasn't about literally who I am and how I feel and like who I feel in community with, but all of these interpolations and ideological constructs that preceded me and created a space for my family to be part of the post-65 immigration generation and also the rise of Asian America as a, con as a pan-ethnic construct. So, so I ended up studying a really cool and terrifying thing, which is the history of representations of, of maimed uh, Asians. But I also studied it in the context of the burgeoning of an Asian American consciousness that was able to take that trauma and grab it, grab onto it as an organizing principle and sort of a point to disidentify with. And, and so I found that really powerful. And also the idea of, it wasn't just dead Asians that, you know, sort of 
mystifies a really complex geopolitical situation in Vietnam. It was also a time in which the Third World Movements were taking inspiration from decolonial military movements and independence movements around the world. And the North Vietnamese were seen by a lot of the American left and American ethnic left as part of that. So dead bodies were also revolutionary bodies. And so it was a way of thinking about different kinds of politics that arise out of death and not just thinking of death as trauma and melancholia, but also as revolution and utopia and holding those two things in common and thinking about, well, what is this Asian American movement that came out of this and how, and how did it powerfully draw from other movements going around, including Black liberation and 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 early feminism, second wave feminism, and also the the conservative backlash. Both of these. How did all of these movements come out of this kernel of an, a war in Asia you know, that the U.S. happened to be involved with? Mm-hmm. Could you expand a little more on that last part about the intersection of this Oriental obscene and the war in Vietnam with the Black Power movement, with feminism, and with the law and order conservatism. I'm really interested if you can expand on that. Sure. Um, so the book is, unlike a lot of ethnic studies books, it's not a book about the production of media by by a group, you know, and, and the control of the means of production. It's very much about the opposite. But then also, despite it being the opposite, about media being made by Asians, how do people understand that media? So part of the story begins before the Asian American movement, where we're looking at the beginnings of the Vietnam War occurring. So we officially declare war in 64. And so the early images of the war are coinciding with images of the civil rights movement, you know, and if not exactly coinciding a couple of years later. And then also the backlash, you know, with the death of Martin Luther King Jr., JFK, that that very violent year of the 68 coinciding with the Tet Offensive, which was the year in which people realized oh shit, we're not going to win this war against these peasants. They're a little bit more advanced than we thought. Having that all come together had people making cheap, some usually not thought through cheap political analogies. You know, the Viet Cong are among us and everyone who's against us is 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 a terrorist, you know, all these things. But then also a lot of radical movements thinking, well, this is the, down, the beginning of the downfall of the American empire. We can be part of this. We can be, we can take advantage of this. These people who are fighting abroad, they may not be us. And I say that, they might not be us because many of these activists, like, for example, Sukli Carmichael or you know, people of the early Black Panther, Panther Party, they were not Vietnamese. And then early Asian American activists, many of them were largely Chinese, Japanese and Filipino Americans. They were not Vietnamese, but they were seeing brotherhood or they were seeing similarities. Tanks running through Vietnam, tanks running through Detroit. You know, people shooting at unarmed civilians, you know, outside of Saigon, people shooting at unarmed civilians in a protest in L.A. or something. So people started thinking about these analogies. So when when I talk about a co-rise of movements, I mean, a lot of scholars have done this careful social history. I'm not a careful social historian because I'm not tracing the actual formation of these movements. But I'm talking about how these movements fed off of this media that I think you could very easily categorize as one-dimensional and very exploitative and stereotyping, right? Dead Vietnamese. And of course, there were other Vietnamese that they didn't show, but they liked to show dead Vietnamese. So here, it's not so much that these movements necessarily caused one another. You know, the causation is something historians talk about. But what I do in media studies, and I'm trained in a lot of the sort of high theory, but what I like about it is it talks about these things that aren't quite logical. 
which is you see these images, they're all mixed up in your brain. They form something like an unconscious and it's a collective unconscious because you didn't individually see it. It was broadcast on news for millions of people to see. So now everyone's got this weird mixed up visual unconscious, tanks, national guardsmen, soldiers, you know, of all kinds, people being hurt, people, you know, people being arrested, people being tortured. How does that all feed into then the language that social movements use? So when I say these movements are connected. There are other ways they are connected, literally by organizers and people and events. I'm talking about a more psychic or imaginary connection. Imaginary doesn't mean not real. Imaginary means in the imagination, where they imagine themselves symbolically to be united by certain things happening. And, and interestingly, because it's imagination, it's not always people, it's taken up by conservatives and right-wing folks as much as left, left with leftists. So you have, you know, people like Rambo, Rambo, the story of Rambo is born in this era, you know, people who are writing about veterans, the white veterans that returns being like the most damaged of all, you know, that suffering the most out of all, all groups. But what, what do they use as the language for that suffering? The torture they saw on the news being done to the news. So it's this interesting thing where the psychic language, the imaginary language, becomes used for all sorts of politics. And so my book was a chance to trace that. And it was a way indirectly for me to think about, well, this is kind of what people are thinking about with Asians just before I came. And it was especially potent to me because my family is, I guess we identify ethnically as Chinese American, but nationally, it's actually very complex. My dad is from Malaysia. My mother is from Taiwan. So there's this you know, Chinese diaspora that includes Vietnam. And my dad served in the military in Malaysia. I don't know what he did. I just have a picture of him with a gun. Who knows, you know, fighting counterinsurgency? I have no idea. This, this is all happening and it's profoundly changing the notion of Asians as simply a dispensable coolie workforce, which might have been like an earlier 20th century stereotype. Now Asia, Asians were subversive and dangerous and revolutionary. And that could go in a lot of different directions. But I think one positive direction it went into was the Asian American movement, which I very much consider myself a product of, even though my parents and I did not participate in you know, the movement in the 70s. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in that idea to the audience. I feel like it'd be evenly split between understanding what the model minority myth is and those who don't. I'm wondering if you can expand on it a little bit and also talk about how do you get from Asians being more dangerous in the post-Vietnam era to a kind of resurgence of the model minority myth that is so prevalent, I would say, and dangerous. Oh, that's a complicated question because I think a lot of people, including activists, understand it differently than I do. And I might eventually get around to writing about this. In my second book, the model minority myth, as most people understand it. I mean, maybe Salomon, I could ask you how you understand it. It's it's like, because uh, you grew up probably what, like a neutered version of it, like Asian nerds or something like that. Are you really going to ask me or is this like? <laughs> I just, I'm just curious, like popularly, like, you know, how would you understand it? How do I understand it? I guess, I mean, that's also complicated. This is not an orals test. Just because of my own family history. I mean, you don't know this about me, but I have cousins who are half Asian. I have a cousin who's half Filipino, another one who's part Japanese. I'm Latino. And so and my parents, when they came to the United States, they went to the Bay Area. And so I feel like it's very complicated. I feel like sometimes it was like an aspiration to my grandparents. Like, look at how far Asian Americans have come in this country compared to Latinos. You know, like, we need to be more like that. And it's always something where I've been like, yes, but no. Like, it's a complicated topic for these, you know, class and racial reasons. And so I, I wouldn't say it's neutered, but I would say it's it's pretty complex. Yeah. Okay. Well, sorry. I well, I guess what I mean neutered is it's not it's it's not 
threatening. Well, it's used differently now than maybe when it was first invented. I think now post eighties, it's like the Asian whiz kid. It's like, you know, tiger moms, Mm -hmm. Asian cultural values make Asians. And they usually refer to East Asians, although I know that, you know, South and Southeast Asians like we're models too, but that Asian whiz kids are just way too good at stuff and we cannot compete with them. So we, so we need to do things that they don't, but first of all, they don't need affirmative action because, you know, there's no poverty in Asian America and everyone's equally gifted with these preternatural math skills. And if we don't stop them, they're going to take over the American economy and the world economy or something like that. There's sort of this, it's a, it's a sense of competition and drive, but it tends to be about economics. Okay. If you go to just the pre-Vietnam War era, late 50s, early 60s, when people started writing the articles that they now trace as the, the root of this idea. It wasn't about that at all. It was about racial triangulation and political inactivity. Because the, the people who were writing about it, you know, William Peterson, a Berkeley sociologist, was famous, famously cited, but a lot of, a lot of people were writing about it sort of without the term. Basically, you're saying in this era of Black protest, 50s and 60s, why are the Blacks complaining so much? They don't have it the worst. Asians have it the worst. Actually, usually it was Japanese Americans singled out. Japanese Americans had it worst because we just recently put them in concentration camps. But they didn't complain. They're not having widespread protests. And yet when we look at them, they are slowly starting to, you know, have like better numbers, you know, like lower arrest rates, lower, lower, you know, higher like employment rates, higher income, not as good as whites but better than other minorities. So the model minority, when it were not, it wasn't Asian whiz kids and it wasn't about competition with whites. It was about suppressing black protest through an explicit triangulation that said there are other groups that had it worse and they are making the best of what they, they have and look how successful they are among minorities. Why can't you be like them? You know, this was the, so, the, and the reason why sort of, I say like, I don't want to be neutered, but it, it was a very much a political move to sort of suppress protest as a way of writing historical injustices. And also say that the system is working well, because look, you know, we can put you in camps and you come out, like you bounce back, like the Energizer Bunny. And that was, there was a famous book, a lot of me say knew it at the time, a Japanese Americans called Quiet Americans. In which Japanese Americans, a lot of community leaders, Chinese and Japanese American community leaders, and Ellen Wu writes about this, bought into this and actually artificially suppressed things like juvenile delinquency and dropout rates within their community. So, so as to rehabilitate their image. And a lot of Japanese Americans in particular, well, both Chinese and Japanese Americans were living in the shadow of active persecution, you know, first under incar- you know, Japanese American incarceration, second under Cold War McCarthyist, you know, anti-communist roundups of labor leaders and, and leftists in Chinatowns. So you have two groups reeling from police persecution and government persecution, presenting themselves as quiet Americans. And then you have a, a new generation starting to learn about the camps, starting to learn about Chinese exclusion and going, wait a minute, that's not right. And so part of the Asian American movement, as it happened you know, in the 60s and 70s, was about not only are we not quiet Americans, we are not benefiting from this system of whiteness as much as you think. And we have much more in common with, with third world. And, you know, you know, at the time it, it started, it started out mostly black liberation, but, you know, then it was, you know, the AIM American Indian movement and the Chicano movement in, in California really 
you know, like we have common cause with these other movements, you know, so like one of the schools that it started at San Francisco State, it, it wasn't just an Asian American strike. It was a third world liberation strike of, of allied student groups. With, and it wasn't a single cause. You know, it wasn't an anti-war strike. It was a strike about self-determination, invisibility in the curriculum, lack of representation in the faculty. And it was the Japanese American university president they were striking against in San Francisco. So I guess when I say neutered, I just meant like a lot of people think nowadays model minority myth is you're a nerd. And then the way to neuter it is like, no, I'm not. I draw too. But it was a political question in the 60s, which is like, you're neutered because you will, you you know not to organize and be completely active. And that's the key to your success. And the counter to that was, screw you, let's organize. Yeah. Interesting. I guess I'm thinking about... I mean, you would call it like, it's different words for different cultures, but like boba tea politics, right? Like really take the edge off what was a truly revolutionary idea. And over time it becomes, I draw too. <laughs> it becomes this. Yeah, this yeah. Boba tea liberalism is, yeah, is very interesting. Liberal. And I think it's a very Americanist kind of notion, but it's interesting. Like symbols are interesting. Boba tea is the Milk Tea Alliance is also an alliance of democracy activists who are actively being shot at in Myanmar, Thailand, and, and Taiwan. So yeah, Bo yes. Boba tea liberalism as people's view it in the US it is a consumerist sort of notion you know, of individuality. So individual, you use American indiv liberal individualism to contest the model minority myth because the main problem of the myth is a lumping together, a stereotyping, a sort of neutering of your ability to flourish and, be, and work at Goldman Sachs. Whereas originally it's like the model minority myth was about using minorities to suppress each other's activism. And the way to counter that was to say, well, we, first, you're not going to use us to suppress another group's activism. And we're also going to be activists in alliance with and also on our own. I, so, I mean, this is something that's very lost in the popular imagination. And uh, I spend, I teach a lot of history classes and I try to make this triangulation, mm -hmm. racial triangulation, really clear to students because obviously Asian American students want to study about Asian Americans, but it's not like we exist in a vacuum, you know, and I grew up in California too. So yeah, outside of the of black, white binary, but also with a lot of other antagonisms, right? You know, mm -hmm. like who's the more model minority, <laughs> you know, successful Latinos are successful Asians. Who can out-white each other? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's part of the, I guess, conception of this podcast, right? Because I grew up in a world that was, I mean, it's a pun, I guess, but it was very much not black or white. You know, I grew up in Texas. I grew up in California. My family was very diverse. Everyone I knew was all these different ethnicities. And my first real approach with like, American whiteness was when I went to undergraduate school. I went to school in Portland, Oregon. And I was like, oh, this, the world is not my world. Like, the world does not look like how I grew up. And it was a really interesting wake up call. Yeah. In a lot of different ways. Yeah. I guess I want to kind of circle back a little bit and maybe find ways that your work could be more applicable. Right. And we're talking about coalition building, which in my opinion, I feel has kind of been lost over the years. That's another reason I thought of this podcast. I'm wondering how do you think you're, <laughs> for those who can't see, <laughs> the professor just shrugged. But how could your work be kind of applied towards that coalition building like it originally was in the 60s and 70s? I shrug. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to demean what you say, but I don't know that I agree. Okay. That there is less coalition building now than there was before. Partly because I think there's a lot more coalition building in po localized pockets than we think and then we see. And there is also a romanticization 
of left politics of the 70s as being much more cohesive and conscious and allied than it was. So I think it's a little bit of both. So you know, part of when I teach about the 60s and 70s is to try to show the complexity of it. It wasn't like every Asian American was an Asian American activist. <laughs> It wasn't like every white person was out to shoot them. And and now, you know, like Black Lives Matter and anti-Asian hate, that that the, those are sort of like, you know, touchstones for a lot of people and people go, you know, why aren't you standing for each other? But it's like, I don't know what you mean by standing. Like, is there not enough Twitter activity for you? Like, do you need to like put a little screen on your Facebook page to say I stand with you? Or is it about like local? When I say local, I'm not just trying to fetishize what happens, but I just mean local as in it happens in such small ways it, that it doesn't have a larger geographical presence. And unless mm -hmm. someone's tweeting about it or blogging about it, there's no media presence about it. I think there's, there's more alliance now than people think. And there was less alliance back then than people think as well. And I think that's sort of the balance we need that movements can be very powerful with a very small active minority working with very clear goals. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean they had the consensus of, of a majority of even their community members behind them, you know. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. For, I guess so originally I was thinking, yeah, let me rephrase what I said. I want to make myself sound good too. I don't know. I feel like with social media and the fractured media environment, my mind went to, it's a lot harder to, we can maybe circle back to the media after this question also, but just, you know, it's a lot harder to kind of find a consensus, quotation mark, quotation mark, um, than it used to be just because there's no monocultural centers. But the question may have just been problematic from the start. So <laughs> we can disregard everything. I know where it's coming from. I get that question a lot yeah. from people. And I think like one, I like to be contrarian. People used to invite me to give talks about leadership. And I would give talks and I'd show up and I'd say, I'm going to give a talk about failure and abjection and you do with it what you want. You know, people are like, okay. Or you know, people are like, I, I want you to talk about the bamboo ceiling and I'm going to get, come and give this raging anti-capitalist talk about like, you know, buying into the modern minority myth. So uh, failure. Oh, it, if you read my book, it's very depressing. <laughs> but it, a lot of it is about, some, some of it is about sort of the inspiration or the activist drive that emerges out of trauma. So where was I going with this? I'm sorry. Let me think about this again. Rephrase your question again for me, Solomon. Oh man, which one? I was just talking about fractured media environment, monocultural things. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so like the, so fractured media environment, I think we, we idealized the degree to which there was a unified media in the past. Mm -hmm or that the media represented some kind of sort of consensus. I mean, a lot in a lot of ways, what you saw was the consensus of a group of elite journalists filtering out what, filtering what they thought was the pulse of the nation, whatever that is. And so if you do like research in, let's say, so a, a newsletter that I use a lot for historical research is Ghidra. It was a student publication out of Los Angeles of the Asian American movement, but the, a lot of the tenets of the Asian American movement early on was community activism. So it would be people act, doing things around town. So it wasn't just UCLA based. They would cover protests and things that were never in the mainstream media, you know. But one of the things that they, you know, they would cover is like people marching anti-war protests with Asian Americans, where they would talk about looking at the Milai massacre, which was a, a publicized, a, a massacre that happened in 68 that was publicized in 71. Um, 
I'm sorry, the trial was in something. It was publicized in, in, in 69, where, where American soldiers marched into a village, were very angry about attack on them and just killed everyone in the village and then left the bodies for an army photographer to photograph bodies of elderly people and of children. And Asian Americans would, would, would have rallies in which they would talk about, I stare at those pictures and I don't see, de see dead Vietnamese. I see my grandmother, you know, I see my family in those villages. Today, I think people would say, oh, you know, check your privilege. That's not your grandmother, your privilege, you know, sansei, third generation Japanese American, you know, you have no right to the story. And it is sort of true, you know, but it was a powerful moment of identification leading towards politics. Mm -hmm. It was saying this, it wasn't appropriating that as my family. And then I'm going to wallow in my pity. It was saying that could be my family. And what us Asian Americans don't realize is that we're one step away from that being our family, you know, so get off our butts and do something about that. So it was a moment of failure. No one, we failed to stop these massacres, you could say, you know, becoming a moment of leadership, of imaginative leadership. So I, I talk about I used to talk about that. I, and then other Asian Americans would, would go, there was a big move towards performative protests. There's a lot of anti-war groups would stage die-ins. I always thought it was really powerful when Asian American groups stage die-ins because they were, you know, so a die-in would be, you know, you go and you're trying to get people, you're bringing the war home. So you go to some, you know, suburban town that's like pro-war and you say, this could be me lie. And then you have like a fake shooting and then you have like pret people pretending to be bodies laying on the ground and then you're performing the immediacy of death. You know, mm -hmm. I always thought it was really powerful when people of color, but especially Asian people perform that because you're lying down and you're performing death and, but you're like, you're, you're, you're very few steps away from that in the sense of like people you could be descended from or related to or are there. And I think it was also powerful in other or people of color did it because these were communities that could easily have been subject to racial violence in the U.S., you know, and, and left for dead on their in their front doorstep. So, so the, these moments of allyship were fleeting because you were aligning yourself with someone who wasn't there, and it was you know a distant you know because like you were trying to bring home the fact of some kind of political violence that wasn't necessarily there, but, but it still was powerful and useful because what's the alternative? The alternative is, well, I mean, I mean, I don't want to say there are no alternatives, but if, if the alternative is that's not me, I don't need to concern myself with that. That's a, that's a hard thing to base a politics on and hard thing to base any future allyship or coalition building on. So the coalition building there, you know, led a lot of groups, you know, like I, I know he is, he's been outed as a potential FBI informant, but there were, you know, Asian Americans like Richard Aoki who involved themselves with the early Black Panther party. And, and they were persuasive partly because, you know, the Black Panther was like, well, yeah, you know, I see where you have a grievance too, you know, come organize with us. I, I feel like, I don't know the details of the case intimately, but I feel like the, you know, the harm that Richard Aoki could have done, you know, is balanced out by sort of, you know, the the power in which they enabled him to just say, you know, go and organize in your own movement. Mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're part of us, not because we're going to let you in on all our black secrets. And there were very few, you know, but let's just say, you know, you go and take our tools and organize your people. 
over in San Francisco J-Town or, you know, in Alameda's J-Town or something. So these were moments of distant symbolic allyship that were important because people then said, okay, I will go and do, or this gives me a reason to act. And, and that's different than I think the allyship people imagine, which is like, you know, two groups shaking hands and then going to a march together. I mean, that is a kind of allyship or like, I don't know, two people retweeting each other's tweets. I guess that's a form of allyship too. It's not visible in those ways, but it's also, but it's still meaningful. Mm -hmm. I want to circle back real quick to more contemporary Asian American media. Oh my God. I had a whole anecdote that I forgot. I remember. Okay. I'm going to cut that fire. Sorry. But can I take a, tell a quick anecdotal story? I was in a meeting with some Latino producers, Latin American, for the most part, all born in the U.S., grew up in like L.A. or Miami or, you know, where Latinos grow up. And a pretty common refrain in these different meetings, like I, I think that's what stuck out to me the most was that they were tired of nautical stories. They were tired of drug dealers. They were tired of migrants. And there was one movie they kept pointing towards where they would say, where's are that? And it was Crazy Rich Asians. And it stuck out to me because, for those who can't see, Sylvia just put a gun to her. <laughs> when I talked to my Asian friends, they all have, you know, valid criticisms of classism, of anti, you know, South Asians, of all these elements. And I thought it was very interesting to say, why is that the example we should look up to? And I wanted to just get your thoughts on that quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I've been writing and giving talks about Crazy Rich Asians for a couple of years now. And if I ever finish my second book, which is about Yellowface, I do want to write about Crazy Rich Asians and the contemporary moment. The reason I put a gun to my head, sorry, okay. I shouldn't use violent things lightly. This is also the thing I teach about, which is the Saigon execution, which is part of Deer Hunter, which is part of a lot of Vietnam media. And yes, everyone wants to be part of some kind of prosperity narrative. You know, and and you know, the to the degree to which people loved Asian American Asian Americans loved crazy rich Asians, it was I guess the sense that like I feel seen. We have to break that down really complexly because it's like you feel seen in something so ugly and limited. It says something about the psychic impoverishment and neutering of whole swaths of ethnic America, that the only way you can feel seen is if you get a glossy image in the national media. How far is that going to go? You know, and what does that mean? You know, so, so why don't you, okay. Why don't you feel seen in the migrants, you know, and the victims of narco violence around you? All right. Because, because, I mean, that's complicated because that's like, that's not, that's media too, but it's also, you know, it is a major crisis happening in, in Mexico. I have a lot of friends working on narco media and narco politics. It's, and, and I, and when they work on narco media, I tell them, please be careful. It, it, you know, it's a real thing. So it's kind of like, you know, Asian Americans going during the Vietnam War saying, I'm tired of being seen as like dead peasants, you know? I haven't been shot in a village. I'm like successful and I run a business and I speak English. I, I... <sighs> Sorry, this is, this is complicated. I'm, I'm, I'm annoyed by this in, on so many different levels. Yeah. So the first level is, I don't think it's only Asian Americans fault. I think there's something about our contemporary moment that has pushed politics into this realm of visual identification 
that is really dangerous and alluring at the same time. Representational politics as the ground for politics. I don't think that representational politics are unimportant, but I think it's there's something interestingly neoliberal about our 21st century moment that has made that ground of politics seem more urgent than bread on the table, you know, immigration reform, you know, class solidarity, many other things. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's one. But the other thing is, you know, this there's nothing very second gen about the embrace of crazy rich Asians. Do you know that you've seen it? Yeah, can I do spoilers? Okay, spoiler alerts for anyone. When I started to write about three years ago, (laughs) I know, but like there's there's lots of things I haven't seen, so I get it. Sorry, Crazy Rich Asians is the movie is very different from the book which I read, and the book is hilarious, and it's much. Even though it's equally obsessed with the ultra rich, you know, the elements of the planet are still there. It's very much, it's a very class conscious satire mm-hmm. about sort of this, the ways in which global finance has enabled, you know, this, the rise of ultra rich in many different countries, you know, poor Hong Kong, China, the, those are, that's the triangle in the, in the book series. The movie made it about like poor Asian American econ professor who, by the way, is probably not poor because they make twice as much as humanities professors. Poor Asian-American econ professor struggles to be accepted by the real Asians that she's marrying into. And when they accept her, that's the the reconciliation of Asia and Asian-America. That is so sad. And so untrue. Because like that sense of acceptance is, I mean, well, anyways, why do you need them to accept you? you know, is part of it. And, and then like, what is the push The this, sorry, I, I'm getting a lot of trains of thought c- confused, but this is also the model minority myth says, you know, Asians are successful because of their culture, right? There's something that makes Asian Americans distinct from other Americans. And we want to strive to keep it that way. Confucian values, whatever the hell that is. Okay. So Asian Americans who buy into that part of it need that reconciliation because it's, it's part of sort of that acceptance that their provisional provisional cultural citizenship ship in the U.S. is predicated on an essential foreignness. So the movie is about the drama of acceptance from foreign Asians mm-hmm. and not for the acceptance from white people. Yeah. You know, so I don't know. You can imagine another crazy rotations would be much less popular and probably very racist in which, you know, Eleanor, you know, like, you know, Henry Golding's family, you know, that whole rich family would be like rich white people. And like you're yeah. wearing into it, and it'd be all the ways that are racist against you. No one would like that movie, first of all. But crazy, rich, <laughs> maybe it would turn into Get Out or something like that. But but any but like if that whole family is replaced by whites, you would see in that desire for acceptance all the ways in which this is like essentially self-hating and mm-hmm. sort of painting yourself into a political and psychic corner, in which your self-love is predicated on recognition from an other who will never give you full recognition. Yeah. Right. So crazy rich whites would never be made, but crazy rich Asians, everyone's like, this is so heartwarming. And like, you know, we love this. I feel seen. So we feel seen by the premise that we are essentially still foreign and we are not full people until we find reconciliation with the foreign side of our otherness. This is it's both this is so bullshit on so many levels. Because first of all, you know, new Asian Americans, younger Asian Americans have very transnational families, and Asian cultures are quite diverse 
and modernized in their own ways. So who's going to say like that, you know, like South Korea is like more advanced in America in some ways, you know, technologically and economically. So why would you need like some, you know, you don't need rec reconciliation because there's much less of that divide, this imagined divide between like the traditional other and the modern American self. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't exist. And then second of all, even pushing for that divide means we accept that our conditional Americanization is based upon a fundamental impossibility to become Americanized. I'm okay. Just to be clear, I'm not saying that Asian Americans should become Americanized and basically become white. But what we're saying is that we accept that our provisional whiteness or inclusion is premised on forever being linked to this foreign other. Mm -hmm. We accept that. We embrace it. We're going to go to Singapore and meet our mother-in-law. Mm -hmm. You know, so like, why isn't Eleanor marrying a white man or a black man or a Latino man or, you know, or like, you know, any other you know, or another Asian American, you know, it's like it's. The, the, all the different ways in which that could have played out didn't play out. And I'm not blaming the source material, but, just, I'm de but the, the way it captures the imagination is go back home, go to the other. That is where you really are. And, it, and, and then the, the worst thing is it invents what you really are. That, is, that doesn't exist. You know, the, the movie's vision of Singapore talked about Boba liberalism. It's Singapore without its British colonialism. It's Singapore without its inter-ethnics between Indians and, and, and Malay and Chinese. It's Singapore without racial conflict and Singapore that is entirely Chinese, mm -hmm. which is imaginary and bullshit. Um, and then it's Singapore that is like, you know, eat some dumplings and, you know, <laughs> and you're one of us. So like Chinese culture becomes like Panda Expressified, you know, or something like that. So it makes up what is Asian it makes up what Asian culture is, you know? So I don't, I'm not as familiar with the Latin American diaspora, but, but, you know, but I have had a lot of students who are not from Mexico who complain about coming to Latina to Latina students, Latinx students who complain that their Bolivian roots, their Ecuadorian roots make them feel like they don't, they're not properly Latino. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I was going to do so, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 so it's sort of like, you know, this, you know, people talk about not feeling, you know, like Asian American is not East Asian, but even the East Asians are inventing a, a vision of East Asia or even, you know, Sinophone Asia, Chinese diaspora Asia. That's completely imaginary, mm -hmm. you know, and satisfies some like, you know, mystical, you know, origin story that justifies political exclusions, you know? And so I don't want to say that it's a cause, but you go dot, 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 and you get to COVID. And people are like, get your Wuhan vi virus out of here. It's like, you think I'm any closer to Wuhan than you are? <laughs> you know, I, I have not been back to China, you know, for like decades. You know, I the closest I get to China is the same as you. We buy our stuff from Walmart. Globalization is your link to China and your, and our link to, to, to COVID. But somehow our bodies are infectious, you know. So it, I, I don't want to say that crazy rich Asians caused anti-Asian violence. But what we think of as a beautiful moment comes out of an ideological premise that I have a lot of trouble with, which I think you can be plausibly linked to the core of anti-Asian violence, which is not new, but has just never gone away. It just has had a new reason to rear its head. Yeah, of course. That's very interesting. Everything, because there are some moments I hadn't quite thought about, but that Asian Latin comparative politics thing. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I won't, one side of me is very sympathetic for the older generation of Latinos who had to leave their home because, you know, 
even with violence, it's a beautiful place. They miss their families. They miss their cultures. And I get that completely. With, this, with kind of my generation, I'm still a little confused because I feel like they're creating this idealized world where classism, high levels of classism and inequality, you know, just don't exist. Or racism is just like, oh, you know, isn't there. And I'm like, no, those things or colorism, like these things are so prevalent. But, you know, growing up in the U.S., yeah, you know, it's mostly not mostly, but the, the entertainment is what Cubans and Mexicans. If you're a Salvadorian like me or Bolivian or Ecuadorian, of course, you're going to say like, oh, but where am I in this picture? You know, because even with similarities, it doesn't it isn't there, but it wasn't there in the first place. Like, it's such a messy conceit that this representation politics kind of pushes onto us, right? Where it's like, find your corner and like stick to it. Like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> you know? Right. It's, it's, it's sort of, if you allow someone to define that there's an essential core to who you are, you're also letting some elite person, even if they're the same ethnicity or color as you, you know, whatever, take control of that narrative. And we've seen in Asian American circles, a lot of dangerous paths that has led into. So I'm married to a mixed race Indian American man who, because he's biracial, is very distant from his politics, but it's me, but it's meant that, you know, I'm trying to figure out how do I make sure my kids who have an Indian surname grow up with some connection to that. But I have a lot of in South Asian academic friends who are deeply disaffected with Hindu nationalist politics, with sort of, you know, regional sort of uh, uh, erasures and clashes with casteism, you know. And so they've taught me that it, it's like, you can't just say like, okay, if I give my kids Diwali and Holi, they... they they are made whole, you know, it's like we went to a Diwali party and then I had my friends tell me like, we, we got to be careful how we celebrate it because it's not, it can turn into a Hindutva sort of supremacist celebration of, of the unification of a, a South Asian identity around Hindu Brahmin sort of values and cultures. And we don't want that, you know, so we're going to have our sort of like eclectic, multi-ethnic, multi-religious Diwali, which is not going to be the Diwali you'll get everywhere, you know. So, 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 so yeah, you can fall into nationalism or people who are like, you know, we don't want racism against Asians, Chinese, but does that mean I support President Xi and, and his campaign against Uyghurs and his suppression of rights in Hong Kong and his... Um, my family's, my, my immediate family's in Taiwan and his potential bombing that hell, you know, Taiwan off the face of the earth. Do I support that just because I don't want people to beat up like poor Chinese grandmas in New York? No. Right. So there's a way in which if we allow their, uh, us to be defined by a pure core of who we are, you know, so like we're not white American and we're proud to be Chinese. I'm just taking my example. That's fine. But is there one definition of Chinese? If we allow someone to define that, you know, it's not enough to say there are many different things, but it's like there's things at stake in the many different. So it's not just I celebrate a multicultural China. It's like I celebrate a China that is anti-colonialist and genocidal, you know, against the Uyghurs. I try to celebrate China that is not national, you know, so it's not bound to any one nation state. And I try to ch celebrate China that's not Han supremacist. Which, you know, takes one minority or sorry, not a minority, a majority, but one group as the image of what Chineseness looks like, you know. So I don't want to say, you know, okay, it's, it, it's different. So Latinx politics is different, but it is similar in the sense that there are potentially elite groups, elite people who are like, I want to define what Mexicanness is. And it's very light skinned and it's Spanish speaking. 
It's not indigenous. It's not black. It's, and it's very capitalist, you know, okay. You know, I'm not saying those people aren't, you know, who they are, but it's like, you know, I'm, I'm sure you can push back against that without being anti-Mexican, just like you can push back against Chinese things without being anti-Chinese. Oh, yeah, that's, that's awesome. I guess I'm conscious of the time and I had this idea. I don't know if you're interested, but I wanted to kind of just ask you about final thoughts on a few media things that I know have come out recently. And I don't know if you've seen them or not, but just, you know, very quickly thoughts. And then okay. maybe we can talk about your book and then just close out your next book. I mean, ah, okay, sure. <laughs> have you seen the farewell? Yes. What did you think? <laughs> what did you think about it? <laughs> um, actually, I think it's beautiful, but I think it's beautiful for reasons that maybe aren't what's captured okay. in the press. I think what people see in the press is like, oh, this is a family getting back to its roots. But I think this is where like Lulu Wong, the director, writer, and, and sort of her cinematography really tells its story. I think what she's telling is the story of the disillusionment of various migrant classes and, and the disappearance of, 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 an, of a China, you know, before our eyes. Because what you have when you have Alcofina, I forgot her character's name, but you know, going back to visit China, what you see is a China that looks more like Detroit, you know, mm-hmm. and a China that is also changing before your eyes. And I think you see, you know, with the debates between the family that stayed and the family that left, you know, various levels of idealization. So the family that's stayed is prosperous, but also idealizes what America is, and the family that's left is not struggling, but is not, you know, that has not exactly made it. And is deeply burned by its immigration you know, story. So I, I think this, I think the story that the farewell tells is not a cultural story, but a story about social change, and about different classes of migrants, and about the effects of globalization on, on the Chinese diaspora. Yeah, that's an interesting way to view it. I thought it was what stood out to me was the personalness of it. You know, especially just their fam- familial relations. I. I, I loved it. I thought it was great, but sorry. Next one. RRR. Did you catch Which one? RRR. The Hollywood movie? No? No, I don't. Sorry. No. Okay. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Oh, I think it's very beautiful, but I haven't. I think it's very beautiful, and I think it has a really wonderful depiction, again, of a non-model minority sort of Chinese migrant life that Asian American migrant life that is not seen. I think it depicts sort of the 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 sort of the sadness of that, you know, really well. I don't I don't know if anyone else shares my thoughts, but I I actually am more I'm more troubled about its queer politics. Mm-hmm. Because I think there is this not that there isn't exclusion, but in my experience, Asian families are much more accepting of queerness than white families. But it but it it happens to be like as a more like don't ask don't tell or like you know it's all good you know (laughs) we're gonna rather than a you know you know put on my p-flag t-shirt and and good rallies so this notion that this essential anti-queerness is is the trauma in the family sits poorly with me Mm -hmm. i don't know if it has any biographical basis in any of the writers and i feel like it it reaches for a trope you know this sort of homo nationalist trope which is you know America is the land of, of freedoms, including of queer freedoms. Taiwan legalized gay marriage decades ago. So it's like, okay, look, that. every every Asian nation's different, but it's like, you know, don't put 
that homophobia sort of flag on my doorstep. That's kind of what I don't love about it. And so the fact that that is the main cause that rifts the universe between the, the, the queer daughter and the mother, it's heartbreaking, but I also just don't know that it's, it, it, that part felt the least true to me. Mm-hmm. That felt like a white coming out story embedded in an immigrant laundromat tale, you know? Asian American children hide a lot of hurts. And I'm not saying that there isn't a lot of rejection from from queer Asian American children, but I I just don't know that. I'm not sure I believe that that would end the universe. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But that said, I thought the fighting was amazing. And the the other plot was amazing. And the queer love and the hot dog love was amazing. What about one car way? Send up. <laughs> I thought those were amazing. Oh yeah. Well, you know, it, I could totally believe that. Oh, I forgot the name of the actor, the, the the male lead. I could totally believe that he could be like in another world in a Wonka way universe. Yeah. <laughs> I have one more, and then we can go talk about your next book. Are you like Marvel movies? To S- some degree. Did you see? I only watched the non-white ones. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know any of the white ones. Sorry. <laughs> so that makes that makes three of them, right? Black Panther one and two, and then Trump two. Am I missing one? <laughs> yes, I have been meaning to see the Eternals and Doctor Strange, but those yeah. will probably more be hate watches than anything. Yes, I just saw, we watched Shang Chi with my my family. I have two kids, six and ten. Probably the six year old is a little too young for this stuff, but I'm forcing her to watch it. They yeah. both loved both Black Panther movies. Yeah. I love the Mexican actor, the Tenoch. I think he's great. Funny yes. enough, he's in Nauticos, Mexico, but he's such a good actor. Oh, is he? I yes. Like well, because you, get, you take the roles you get. I mean, what are you going to do, yeah. right? That's, that's the tragic part, isn't it? Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, that's a whole other conversation. So <laughs> yeah. I, I love Shang-Chi. I don't think anything deep of it. And I think, you know, there's been a lot less like racial savior narratives about it than Crazy Rich Asians. So you know, there's less grossness there. I will say I was debating this with my my husband too. There, there is sort of, uh, there is some debate about whether Simu Liu, you know, was like the right character, right actor to pick to play Shang-Chi, which, which gets again to cultural purity and like sort of notions. People are like, you know, He's not attractive enough. He's not like the Asian American heartthrob we needed him to be. And, and I'm like, what the hell? You know, I, maybe maybe it's hard because he has to star next to Tony Leung, who is beautiful even in his old age. But but I think there's, again, there's this notion that like, you know, our beauty standards, East Asian beauty standards are fucked up. Let me just say that. Yeah. Not, not everyone needs to look like a prepubescent K-pop idol, even if that is who is most popular <laughs> in all of East Asia. <laughs> and, and there is a little bit of masculinity, toxic masculinity politics there that's been a long-going debate in Asian-American circles. Do Asian-American men really need to be re-masculinated? Mm-hmm. You know, so that they don't, you know, get queerified? What is, you know, queered? And I don't know that I believe that. So Shanky kind of, fits into that long-standing debate, you know, so he gets his phallus back by kicking butt, but, you know, but I think all in all, it's not, it, it is not the worst thing it could be. And there's okay. funny moments about the diaspora meeting, meeting Asian America. Yeah. I speak ABC is the one yes. that I remember. <laughs> yes. I guess just, I want to say two things about that. And then the last question, but you know, my girlfriend disagrees. I think, I think he thinks similarly is really hot. <laughs> is what she told me while we watched the movie. <laughs> and then I can't believe Marvel got Tony Luong. That was when I heard that news, I was like, really? And then I, I was just, I don't know. The way Marvel gets these 
big actors, like actual actors always impresses me. Like Michael Douglas and Tony Leung. I'm like, um, Mar- Marvel, I mean, this, I mean, for film study scholars, this is something people are really trying to wrap their brains around the consolidation of the media scape into a few places. I mean, I need to watch Eternals. I don't really want to, but I need to because Chloe Zhao directed it. But I, but I don't want to watch the Eternals because it sounds like crap. And I don't care if, you know, there are Asian Americans in it. I don't care if Gemma Chan's in it. And, 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 Oh, I'm sorry. Who's the South Asian guy? There's like a couple, and isn't there, there's a handful of Asians. There's like that guy from Dr. Strange. And then there's the guy from, who's the comedian from Silicon Valley. Kumail, yeah, Kumail Nanjani. Kumail Nanjani. And, and then there's some other Asian guy. And then there's Gamma Chen from Crazy Rich Asians. But I just, I just don't care. I think that's, I think that's a fair opinion to have. <laughs> I need to watch Doctor Strange because I heard about the dust up between Margaret Cho and Tilda Swinton, and I really want to see like what messed up so Asian Tilda Swinton played. But I didn't know there was a again. Dust. That's I knew hate there watching. Was controversy. I knew there was controversy. I didn't know there was a full on dust up between Margaret Cho and Tilda Swinton. I need to look that up yeah. after this. Yeah, that's all. Yeah. Interesting. What is your next book about? Do you have a title for it? Do you know when it's going to release? Your release when it's written. Second books, as you may know, are notoriously hard, and they're harder in particular for faculty who take on a lot of other roles, burdens. So I've just been kind of sucked up in doing service and admin for a while. But my second book, which I've been researching for over a decade, so you'd be like, why is it not out? Is about Yellowface in Hollywood, mid-century. It's called Yellowface Peril. And it's trying to think about how Yellow face as a practice. Yellow face is when non-Asians put on makeup and junk and try to play an Asian role. But my argument includes Asians sort of playing Asian roles in Hollywood and sort of, you know, the ways in which that is structured. So, so it's centered around the World War II era in which we had a lot of Chinese and Koreans playing the Japanese enemy and raising questions about loyalty and the degree to which assimilation is linked to loyalty and belonging, but also the ways in which actors play to preconceived notions of what racialization looks like, even when they already are racialized, in ways that contradict or reinforce the ways they live their racialization off screen. So it's sort of a, a, it's a performance and performance studies heady discussion of performance strategies, but also racial ideologies. You know, and so how we got from the era that said like everyone's a coolie chink terrorist to like, oh, we like Asians and they're chop suey. So 20s to 60s. And in a way, many ways, it's a prequel to the Oriental Epstein. Well, okay. I look forward to reading that. That sounds really interesting. Thank you. you Don't hold your breath. No, I mean, thank you for having me. I think, you know, a lot of my questions are complicated because I think if we examine the past, which I hope we continue to do, it has a lot of lessons for us in the present. We are not beholden to living the way other people lived before us. But I think if we looked at the choices that people made, ordinary people, as well as, you know, people, you know, connected, savvy elites, I think we see some of the choices that they were faced with, you know, difficult ones. There's no perfect choice. And maybe we can celebrate some of the things that they achieved. I don't mean in a boba liberalist way, but just celebrate sort of like the alliances and the small victories that they were able to earn, even if they came at a price. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been really fantastic.
Thank you. Good luck with editing this. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think? That was a great conversation. I feel like I learned so much. I, myself, and an Asian American, I was born and raised in the U.S. And a lot of the things that she discussed were either new to me because of like my upbringing and how I kind of approached I guess my existence in the U.S. But yeah, that was I thought that was a really great conversation. Yeah, I thought I'm really happy that she came on. I'm so grateful for her time. I thought it was very informative, especially at how it intersected with a lot of my interests and I would say life experience. I liked how we talked a lot about it's obviously Asian American focus and Asian focus, but I have, we talked about Latin American media depictions, and I feel like there was always space to talk about things comparatively, you know, especially as just people of color in the United States, and to talk about how certain, I mean, kind of what you said at the beginning, right, is how certain players that be want to put upon you what you should be. Like, they're, you know, to have an ideal Latino in media or to have an ideal Asian in media something to aspire to like this is who you are and mm-hmm. this is what you must live up to when no one is really truly like that you know the world is very messy and it's important to really decenter those things and say like that's cool but it isn't everyone they may exist but it may not even be the norm the majority or you know what is needed at the moment I think what is interesting about all the representation that is happening in media and I I just want to say how this is all from the industry. Like, even if you are a creator of color, like you are still a part of the industry and like what narrative you are shaping. Like, I think it's important to be aware of like why we are seeing the things that we are seeing now. and not only like who does this who made this but who benefits from it who's getting the money for it what does this add to our public discourse and truly like we talked about this in one of my classes last semester it's new media and texts across cultures and we talked about how with dating shows the contestants who are on these shows are like the prime model of what you should want in a man or woman speaking of very binary terms but applying that kind of like way of thinking to the media that we watch like even if it's just a movie like why are they what we want to be as far like you are being told this Mm -hmm. like you're not being like oh i want to be a crazy rich asian like you probably saw that and you're like no like that's a model set out for me without me even knowing it Does that make sense? <laughs> okay. I'm just going back to the conversation when I brought up uh, truly how many people brought that up as the as the as the moment, right? As the model to aspire to for Latino media depictions. I guess the uh, the initial thing that I thought of, and I think I talked a little bit about this in the conversation, is I mean, life is messier than that. There's a reason why you can't really have that depiction and it's because of a history of colonization of classism of a lot of very messy violence that complicates that you know you sure you can have it and you can make a version where you know someone goes back to i don't know 
Ecuador or Colombia, right? And then they have arepas and empanadas and they eat some food and then they get married and, you know, all oh, this conflict with the with the home country. But that's not, I don't think that's the thing to aspire to. And I think that's a very interesting point too that he makes where it's, what did he say? He said something along the lines of, he is still seen as foreign in the U.S., so he needs the validation of people back home in Singapore. And I was like, I think that's, you know, really hitting the need, like the hammer on the head. Hammer? Hitting the nail yeah. on the head. <laughs> in, in the, we yes. got there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know when we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but you had mentioned that another key moment that got to you was the boba liberalism. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know that was a term. And then I Googled it. <laughs> And I was like, this is absolutely fascinating. And I think we'll preface what I'm about to say of like, I study a lot of contemporary American media. I I feel like for context, like I grew up in a very, like we had a lot of Koreans in Northern Virginia, but I really distanced myself from them. And so I had a lot of white friends and I was on the crew team and went to a small liberal arts school in Virginia and like again only hung out with white people and stuff like that and and a lot of the politics that I'm exposed to is American politics like I'm a lot of the things about Asian American activism and advocacy all of that like I feel like I'm just now starting to learn it and at like 26 so I do want to preface that that like I just learned what boba liberalism is, and I think that's fascinating and how it ties to kind of the model minority myth of, like, when we talk about race and politics, like, we Asians, again, I'm generalizing, we are very much lumped in with the, oh, you're being quiet. As she said, you're being quiet. You're not, like, making a ruckus. You're not, like, revolutionizing. Like, you're not complaining about how oppressed you are and how we can like really tie ourselves to white politics. Mm-hmm. I feel like after every time I'm going to be like, does that make sense? <laughs> like, does that make sense? Is anything I'm saying like problematic? I, guess. I mean, like the, the whole life is problematic, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> kind of, that's kind of the bitch of it. Isn't it? Like, mm-hmm. This life that we're in is, is problematic. Being in this country is problematic. You know, yeah. going back to what Nakash said a couple episodes ago, couple last episode, like this is all stolen land, right? Like mm-hmm. every, this country was built on slave labor, like mm-hmm. everything of, you know, we can benefit from the movement of our parents, but then it's important to say like, listen, this is not Candyland, right? This is not a Walt Disney-fied America, like bad shit happened and bad shit continues to happen. Bad shit has happened to even our communities, even if we are not directly affected by it, we are a product of it. Very much so. You know, crazy rich Asians won't say that. <laughs> Nauticals barely says that, <laughs> you know, and that's about drug wars. And it's, you know, like this is just the reality. So yeah, of course it makes sense. I think what's interesting to me is again, kind of doing comparative. I forgot where I read this. It might have been the economist. They're talking about like Latinos and politics. It's messy because, I, I, again, this is very problematic 
but it kind of divided it into three different sectors. And it was like Latinos that see themselves as people of color, Latinos that kind of identify as white. And then there was a third one that I, I honestly just forgot. But I mean, that's true because it's true. There are white Latinos, there are brown Latinos, there are black Latinos. And when you have this monomyth, you 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 fuck it all up, right? You don't get into what makes these cultures these cultures. And it is the mixture of everything. In the same way that it's, you know, Americans have a monomyth of Asian America. Oh my God, I was on, on Reddit and I saw um, like a tweet that someone posted where it said, it was an Asian dude and mo like his mom had told him, speak Malaysian and don't speak Mandarin because I don't want to be arrested. And the guy said in his response, I'm, I, I don't think Americans are smart enough to realize the difference between the two languages, <laughs> which is real, you know? That's, that's so funny. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the complexities that come with us <laughs> existing. <laughs> you went off there. I'm sorry. <laughs> We're getting very existential. It's fine. I know. I know. I think it's. I think another important point that I got to me was the community building aspect of it. You know, is is what I what I what did I say that she pushed back against about the lack of coalition building. I I think she has a point. I think communities are stronger on a local level now. Maybe less on a national level, but on a local level, I do think they are stronger. And I think that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. I think it's bad. Idealized form of something that may never have existed in the first place. Yeah. I, in response to that, like, I was really struck by when we were talking about the Vietnam War and the model minority and racial triangle. I'm butchering words today. I'm so sorry. And how, like, with, I was kind of seeing these conversations back in 2020 when the Black Lives Matter protests were like really strong and I remember a lot of people who were Korean that I knew being like that's not the way to speak out against things that are happening to you like that's like that's just not the way to do it I strongly disagree with that and you know that brought up a lot of things and I was really struck by how this model minority myth was mainly to like suppress black people and suppress protest and how like I, I still feel like we're seeing this of like that that's not the way to do it and like I know there was a lot of Asian hate especially around COVID and stuff like that but like at the same time when Black Lives Matter was happening like it there was still that like divide that I was seeing and when I was listening to her talk about this, I was like, wait, like, that we do have more local community. And we do have a lot more, like, acceptance of each other and who we are and, like, really getting to know our identities. And I feel like we are at that age, both, like, in life and, like, personally, where we are accepting our, like, who we are and stuff like that. But... Yeah, that, that was a very long way of saying, like, are we still seeing this suppression with the model minority myth? 
Yes. <laughs> yeah, like obviously the answer is yes. <laughs> I don't know. Like I feel like that because she talked about that wave of like pre-Vietnam War. There was this idea of the model minority myth, and then during was like a lot of suppressing of black people and then afterwards it turned into like whiz kids and tiger moms and stuff like that but now are we getting back to the like racial suppression like Mm -hmm. but at the same time like not to say like all these things can exist at the same time i'm not saying it like all of these are separate but yeah no of course i think in many ways yes i'm going to say this as a third party observer of neither ethnic group being mentioned in many ways yes and in many ways no i feel like you know I've just as much, but maybe I'm not mainstream, right? I'm kind of like <laughs> going to cut this out because it sounds really horrible. I'm like alternative. So when <laughs> I follow alternative media, I I hear a lot of coverage talking about these issues and pushing back against it. I hope to be a voice and, you know, in the center, I say mockingly to break it and kind of bridge the two. But I, I, I would like to hope again as a third party that it is being broken down. It continues to be broken down. And the birth of the model minority and kind of the socio-political background in which it came about and continues to exist isn't going away, but we're talking about it, right? Yeah. We're saying, this is what gave birth to it. This is how we can kind of push back against it and really have these discussions about, you know, what does freedom and equality look like for all people in this country yeah i think that breakdown that you speak of like yeah even having that conversation of like people in my generation with people two generations up of being like no like this here's the history here's what it led to and we need to be like in support of this Mm. i think that it even though it might exist like yeah, since we are having that conversation, you could argue that we're breaking these down. And then when you asked me to co-host this episode, first, I was very excited. Love talking about topics like surrounding all of this, especially when it ties to media and representation, narrative and stuff like that. But as I was listening to the interview, I was like, I feel like I'm the wrong person to be talking about this because I am so... I feel like she would agree or she would disagree with what I'm about to say is like I'm so American that my view on everything is skewed yeah but also American enough that I'm still for you know, that whole conversation that came up about <laughs> no word right like I get that and I was gonna say this way earlier too but when you're talking about American politics there's that episode of Patriot Act with Hassan Minhaj, and he talks about Indian politics. And his parents are like, what do you know about India? You were born and raised in, you know, Palo Alto? Like, you were, what did Sylvia say in the interview too? She said something like, he's as much Chinese as anyone else. Like, we are nowhere close to Wuhan or Beijing. Yeah. Like, you're the equal, you know, and I've, I've definitely had that reaction from, you know, people in my family where I talk about Latin American like the region's politics and they're like what <laughs> what do you know about it like honestly you know i think there does come a certain privilege in living and being born here and having citizenship here and a number of other factors but i don't think 
you can completely disregard the opinions, right? That is what diaspora, like we are a diaspora. So I yeah. feel like it is still valid, even if it is not of equal weight, quote unquote. Does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> a lot of quote unquotes this episode. On a lighter note, I thought it was interesting. I felt kind of bad. It felt really corny, but just to kind of throw out movies at the end of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I was like, you know, she's an expert. I love movies. Let's see. I thought her point about everything everywhere all at once was interesting. You know, I because again, I don't can't really comment fully on it, but I did think her point was interesting where it's like, is this riff strong enough to break the universe? You know, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I just, I love that whole portion of the discussion and I thought it was interesting. Yeah. So I personally have not watched the movie yet. What? Yeah. I have not watched it yet. It wasn't like available on anything. So I missed it when it was in theaters and it wasn't available on anything. And now it is, but then school started back up and I was like, ah. yeah, so I need to watch it. My jaw is on the floor. I know. <laughs> I, it is at the top of my list. And honestly, after listening to the interview i might watch it this weekend but in talking about again this is coming from not watching the movie and talking about like riffs this is i'm gonna bring up my therapy session from earlier this week because i think it kind of relates as to like i a lot of children of parents who immigrated here you have that like your parents come here with the dream of the american dream of your kids doing well being successful like all the opportunities that the united states can give you but then when you start doing those things like you are so distant from your family because you are doing things like in a different way than they did you are going through different struggles than they did both valid struggles but i think like all of that to say how context matters i think like there is still a big divide between parents and children who were born here but again have not watched the movie maybe my thoughts will be different yeah <laughs> there's so many different ways we can close this conversation out i'm wondering i guess i have a couple different things i'm wondering if you want to end off on talking about empire and media or if you want to talk about what would you say is like I still want to talk about representational politics also, because I think that was an important thing she brought up. You know, like, is there any ideal or is that just a kind of Western idea that we are trying to follow? You know, where it's mm-hmm. like Western ideal of what exactly? Like, people are not singular, you know. Maybe they're similar in what they like, but it doesn't mean they are exact down to the brain chemistry. Mm-hmm. So I'll hand it over to you to get what you think. Yeah. I really found the conversation about representation like so critical Um, because I also agree like we need representation like we can't just not have Asian actors in movies like this like come on but at the same time yeah like thinking critically about it and I hear a lot of arguments of like well isn't that what you wanted you didn't like didn't you want an Asian man playing the lead in a rom-com. And it's like, but that's not the point. Like, you're not, like, checking off a box, stuff like that. But on the other side of things, like, the 
quote-unquote cultural representation I when I was listening to this conversation I was thinking about all the vlogs that I watch I'm an avid YouTube watcher and how when I was younger Korean food I was bullied for it I liking k-pop like was weird all of that and then now I'm seeing influencers being like oh I'm eating kimchi it's so good for your gut health and I'm like okay yes it is but also you're for one you're forgetting how much like this was not widely accepted even a couple years ago and two you're forgetting the entire like background of this one dish and like you're narrowing it down to oh it's good for your gut health like yeah it is good for your gut health but everything like fermented is like basically good for your gut health i'm not a nutritionist that might be wrong but you know like there's that and like i see a lot of influencers who started going vegan they were turning to a lot of korean foods because we do have a lot of side dishes and foods based out of, or we have lots of side dishes and I guess like dishes in general used with like root vegetables, vegetables, leafy greens, stuff like that. There are so many ways to get all your nutrition like through our side dishes and stuff like that. And they're like, oh, like this is like a new thing that I discovered that I'm eating. And it's like, no, this is not new at all. Like this has existed for us Korean people for like hundreds of thousands of years. Like this is what we have been eating that you make fun of. And now you're like making it popular without giving it any context. And like, yeah, I can be like, oh, it's so great that people are eating Korean food. But at the same time, I'm frustrated being like, you're not getting the like context of it all mm-hmm. or like even the American history of it all of like if you were in any middle school with any non-white person who brought a lunch to school and it smelled like you're made fun of. Like I know it was a common story. So like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I, think, well, I, think... I really went off on that one. But <laughs> no, but I think, again, it's one of those things that is valid because. I mean, wh- what does it become? Right. Is it? cultural appropriation is it just gentrifying your food and calling you know like oh i came up with this fermented korean it's called kimchi you know they just make up names for shit that have names but it's just (laughs) like you know what what do you even call this because it's not making it popular there are a lot of korean americans there are a lot of salvadorian americans there are a lot of black americans it does not stop you know a wasp from taking it and saying like look what i found (laughs) like what so what do you even call that, you know, yeah. other than just ignorance disguised yeah. as discovery? And, like, yeah, like, a part of my quote-unquote culture is being represented. But that is... Maybe take out the next thing I'm about to say, and you can take out the lessons if you need to. But it's, like, I would rather you not eat it than have you eat it, like, with misplaced values i guess mm-hmm. like we're not a part of your trendy latest vegan recipe like <laughs> yeah no i i think this is this is all valid right i'm not gonna say this is an invalid conversation we are having like of course it's important because it's 
it starts with the food and then it goes to the neighborhoods and then it turns into something, you know, it just, it goes on and it goes on. Like, and this is pretty, I don't want to say universal for people of color in the U.S., but I mean, it kind of is, right? I mean, anywhere where like a lot of Asian people, a lot of black people, a lot of Latinos live that has cheaper rent, you know, more and more, maybe less now because of COVID, but they will get bought up by hipsters. I'm not saying I'm not a hipster, but I'm saying that is a common thing that happens, you know? Mm -hmm. It happened in the Mission in San Francisco. It happened in Brooklyn in New York. It, like, it happens wherever these cities, where these metropoles are. So mm -hmm. I, I think it is valid. I think it's important, you know? And it, it, it goes beyond just boba, right? It goes into, like, Kamala Harris going to Central America and having a pupusa and then saying, don't come. Like it doesn't, yeah. do, you know, like, sure, thank you for enjoying the food that I enjoy. <laughs> it doesn't solve the root problem. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We can't stop at representation. I know that we kind of went long on that point, but was there anything else that you wanted to cover in this last portion? You know, <laughs> I think it was... Uh, I'm grateful she came on. I'm grateful that we had this conversation. I think it turned out really great. I, I, you know, I think it was very informative for all parties, I would hope. And after we stopped talking, she gave me a bunch of other people's names to reach out to. So I got That's more. Fantastic. Otherwise, I really want you to plug your new podcast also. Yeah. So my new podcast is co-hosted with Grant Lacanzi. It's called Media Culture and Why We Feel Like Crying. So again, where we talk about media in our daily life. You can follow us on Instagram at Media Culture and Why Pod and on TikTok. And we are currently only on Spotify, but we are making it work with the other platforms. It will be available soon, I hope. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been Minority Report with Salomon Flamenco and Stephanie Trice, the co-host for this episode. Thank you so much, Stephanie. All the socials are in the description, including for our network, Hente Bohemia's Instagram, our personal podcast Instagram, some links to Stephanie's podcasts, Instagrams, and TikToks, I believe. Yes. And you can email us at minorityreport.beat at gmail.com to continue the conversation. Thank you so much. Hope you guys enjoyed it. See you next time.